Hello, church. Uh, I'm Pastor Michael. Uh, today is our 10-year anniversary, and the staff and I, we had planned for this celebration, um, which we're going to postpone until we can gather together again. But um, to mark this day, I did want to share some remarks, and I wanted to share with you some uh, memories that I have of the beginnings of our church. You know, you, you could think of them as uh, little factoids that you may not know. So I have uh, five factoids, five memories. Uh, let me go through them. Uh, the first one is, did you know that um, in the early days of our church, it was Tommy Wong and Sammy Zhang who were the leaders of our church. Um, they were actually the deacons of the other church out of which the core planting team came out. And it was really because of their initiative and their leadership that uh, this church began. And I really think uh, without them, <clears throat> humanly speaking, this church would not exist. And so I really want to express my, my deepest appreciation to them. And also we, we, we had this great uh, core team of about 30 people. And I think about 70% of them are still here today, faithfully serving, faithfully participating, which is amazing. It's a testimony to God's spirit working in them. Um, the second memory I have is I remember in uh, the early days we were having these planning meetings. And in one of them, we were going to choose the name of our church. And so we drafted up, you know, candidate names. I think there were about six names and we voted on them. And the vote was really close. Uh, the difference between the first and second choice name was I believe only a single vote. And the second choice name was Grace City Church. And so, you know, we were this close to being GCC if only one person had switched their vote. Um, the, third, the third factoid is uh, Castro Valley. You know, a lot of people ask, why do we plant in Castro Valley? And literally, it was basically, we looked at the core team, we looked at where everybody lived, and then we chose the middle spot. <laughs> You know, and it was Castro Valley. And it's, it's kind of funny because previous to this church, I had never heard of Castro Valley. Um, I went to college at Cal, you know, in Berkeley. And so, of course, I knew something of the Bay Area. Uh, Christina, uh, my wife, who was then my girlfriend, she lived in Cupertino. So, you know, I, I knew how the BART <laughs> stops would go. It was Berkeley, then Oakland, then um, Hayward, and then Fremont. And I knew that there was, you know, a city called San Ramon. But I had no idea there was a place called Castro Valley. And it's kind of funny because here I am in Castro Valley now. And as I've shared with you guys before, I am committed. I, I'm going to live here for the rest of my days. And and if you will allow me, you know, either you're going to bury me or I'm going to bury you. I'm, I'm here for the duration. The fourth memory is um, we planted this church without um, any young children. Everybody was uh, childless. And the first child to be born in the church was actually Judah, my son. Christina was pregnant through this whole time. <coughs> and then um, three months into the church plant, he was born. And then... Um, and then Judah was it for a while. And then the second child born into the church was Kira, Winnie and Hal's daughter. I was so excited. I was so happy. And then the third child born into the church was Sienna, Sammy and Rachel's daughter. And now, you know, subsequent to that, you know, as we say, the rest is history. We have something like 60 or 70 kids. Um, there must be something in the water. And it's one of my special joys and pleasures to 
see the kids playing together after church service, and I think that's really wonderful. I think that um, children need friends in the church, Christian friends to grow up with. Finally, the last memory that I have is we planted this church, and we started out with a single community group. We would alternately meet at uh, Sammy and Rachel's place and then Kaylin and Melissa's place. And um, fun little fact, uh, Kaylin and Melissa's place will now be John and Christina Cherney's future home. They're going to move into that home um, in June. But now we have 10 community groups. We started with one and now 10. And just the overwhelming harvest and fruitfulness of our church, it just blows me away. It, it amazes me. You know, we started planting this church and we just wanted to preach the gospel faithfully. We just wanted to live it out faithfully day in and day out, year after year. And God has shown his favor and his goodness to our church. And I'm really grateful. And all the glory goes to him. So those are my memories. Those are my remarks. Um, we're going to do the celebration properly when we gather together again. So let's go into the sermon. So for our 10-year anniversary of our church, I want to preach on the vision of our church. And the vision of our church is um, to follow Jesus and to help others to follow Jesus. And what we've been saying is that the two go together so that you cannot follow Jesus without also helping others to follow him so that the following is something that you don't just do individually, but that you do together and for one another. And this is a vision that that is not just for uh, this year or for the next couple of years, but this is the vision of our church for the duration. This is the vision that we're going to hand down to our children and to our children's children. It's going to take many generations to fulfill, to to live out this vision. And I can't think of anything uh, worth more giving our lives to than this. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at uh, the vision again in our text, which is Luke chapter 5, verses um, 1 through 11. This is uh, Jesus' call to Peter to be his disciple. And so uh, it's going to be printed up for you on the screen. I'll read to you starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. 
And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of God. And so we're looking at Jesus' call to Peter. And truly, it is an amazing story. It's, it's, it's a beautiful story. And there's just so many layers to it. There's just so much. I love this story. There's just so much treasure to unearth. And so what we're going to do is, there's no outline. Um, I'm just going to walk you through the story, verse by verse. And I'm just going to comment as we go along. All right? So let's begin. We're going to start in verse 1. This is the setting. So what happens is that the text tells us there's this crowd surrounding Jesus by the, uh, the lake of Genesaret. And Genesaret is just another name for Galilee. So this is the Sea of Galilee. And this is the very beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. He's, he's teaching, he's healing the multitudes. And the response is just overwhelming. And verse 1 tells us that the crowds, they were, they were pressing in on Jesus. They were, they were pressing in on him. So much so that he, he didn't have the space to teach. And so he's walking along the Sea of Galilee and he sees these two boats on the shore and he climbs into Peter's boat, right? To, you know, separate himself so that he has some distance from the crowd so that he could sit down and he could teach the crowd. Because along the Sea of Galilee, there were these, you know, natural hills and uh, natural amphitheaters so that people could hear him. And it's kind of funny because it doesn't look like Jesus even asked for permission to do this. He just steps into Peter's boat and just uses it. And you can sort of imagine Peter's perspective. He's annoyed. Um, he's feeling indignation. You know, who does this guy think he is? He acts like he just owns the place. And it's really interesting because Jesus basically, he turns Peter's boat into his pulpit, right? He transforms it into church to teach the people of God. It's really interesting. And so after Jesus teaches the people, you know, and this is just the setting of the story, he turns to Peter. This is the main drama. And in verse 4, listen to what he says. He says, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. He says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, you have to understand how incredibly aggravating this must have been for Peter. Because first of all, Peter and his companions, and you know, in Peter's boat, there was him and his younger brother, Andrew. Andrew, who is unnamed, but we know this from the other accounts, it was Andrew. And then in the other boat was James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And verse 10 tells us they were business partners. So this was, you know, some kind of joint business venture of which Peter, it seemed like, was the leader. And so Peter and his crew, they're out there, you know, they're doing night fishing. You know, they were, they were, they were fishing at night, which was the common practice in that day, still today. And the reason why you would fish at night is because 
um, the torchlight would attract all of these insects and the insects would in turn attract the fish. And so at night, your boat would just be, you know, surrounded by all of this, these fish. And not only that, but at night, the fish couldn't see the nets very well. So this is really an optimal time for fishing. And Peter tells us that they had been fishing all night, right? In verse 5, he says, master, and uh, the Greek word there is epistata. Epistata is um, the way you address a rabbi. It was sort of an honorary title. It means teacher. It means rabbi, right? So he says epistata. Um, he says, master, we, we toiled all night and took nothing. And you could just hear the, the exasperation in Peter's voice, right? It's been a long day. It's the end of a long day, you know, and it's been this long, fruitless night. And they've caught nothing. They have nothing to show for it. They're tired. They're exhausted. You know, the whole night has just been a waste. And all they want to do at this point is go home and sleep it off. But Jesus tells Peter, I want you to go back out there and I want you to put down your nets. I want you to cast your nets. And notice in verse 2 that while Jesus was teaching, they were cleaning their nets. You see, they were wrapping up. And by the time that Jesus had finished teaching, they had washed their nets. They had removed all the gunk and the grime. They had mended the holes. They had fixed all the tears in the nets. And so you could sort of imagine, you know, Peter and his crew, they're done for the day. They're wrapping up. They're, they're, they're collecting all of their gear and they're ready to go home. And so the last thing Peter wanted to do was to go back out there and drop what would now be his clean, fresh nets back into the sea. And so Peter is frustrated. It's the wrong time of the day. He already knows there's no fish in the sea. It's, it's, the lake is all fished out. And so who does Jesus think he is? He's just a rabbi. It's Peter who is the professional fisherman. The other thing that you have to um, take into account to really appreciate the drama of the story is that Peter and his crew, they were fishermen. And fishermen in the ancient world was not a highly reputable profession. I mean, it was honest work, but the, the, the reputation of fishermen is that this was a rough crowd and not particularly pious, you know, not really religious. And so I think the, the modern equivalent might be, you know, think about a bartender or think about a construction worker, you know, and I, I'm sorry to appeal to these stereotypes, but, you know, imagine somebody who's all tatted up cigarette dangling from his lips, you know, imagine somebody who's this street-wise fisherman, that was Peter. And on the other hand, rabbis in that culture were highly respected, especially um, among the Jewish people. And, you know, Jesus would talk about this in his parables, how, you know, rabbis, they love to be greeted in the streets, they, they would wear these long flowing robes, they really enjoyed sitting um, in the honored seats at banquets, and, you know, Jesus was really critical of this. And we also know that Jesus was not 
a, a rabbi in the traditional sense, right? I mean, he was the son of a carpenter. He was a tradesman himself. He knew how to swing a hammer. You know, Jesus didn't go to one of these classic rabbinical schools in Jerusalem, which was um, a source of enormous uh, criticism and, and, and consternation among the other rabbis. But at this point in the story, you know, Peter probably didn't know that about Jesus. And so rabbis and fishermen, they were from two different worlds. You know, rabbis, they were scholars. They were, you know, learned men, teachers of the word. You, you could sort of think of them as the pastors of that day, right? So, you know, think about the fact that they didn't really have a lot of practical knowledge. They didn't have a lot of practical know-how. And so when Rabbi Jesus tells Peter to go back out there and to cast his net, Peter was not just annoyed. He was angry. This was insulting. This rabbi has no idea what he's talking about. But in verse 5, I love this, Peter says, But at your word, I will let down the nets. I love that. Peter says, what you're asking for makes no sense at all. But simply at your word, I will do it. Jesus gives no explanation, but Peter obeys. And I really think here that Peter is giving us an example for all of us. Because sometimes the blessings doesn't come until you can finally say to Jesus, simply at your word. I will obey. So Peter goes out there with Andrew and he casts out his net. And what happens next is Peter catches this miraculous catch of fish. And there are several details that really bring this out. Because first of all, the text tells us that the nets were so loaded down with fish that they were actually breaking. And you can sort of imagine, you know, Peter and Andrew, they were these brawny fishermen with muscular arms, and they're just straining, right, to bring in this monster catch of fish, and and, and they can't do it. And so they call out to their partners, James and John, get over here right now, right? And all four of them, right, they bring in this, this catch, and there's so much fish that it actually fills up both boats. And in fact, there's such a super abundance of fish that both boats are starting to sink. It's almost this comical scene. Um, and this was undoubtedly the biggest catch of Peter's life. This was a miraculous catch. You know, it was almost as if every fish in the Sea of Galilee just jumped into the nets, right? Just Every fish just leaped in, right? I mean... That's the only explanation. And then look at Peter's response. It's very strange. In verse 8, he falls on his knees and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You know, it's very strange because Peter has just basically hauled in a million dollars worth of fish. I mean, this would have been a staggering amount of money in the marketplace. And rather than celebrating, right, rather than saying, this is amazing, this is is wonderful, you know, thank you, Rabbi Jesus, notice 
He doesn't even thank Jesus. But suddenly, he realizes how sinful he is. It's very strange. What's going on here? You see, as Peter is looking at this catch, he's wondering, who is this that commands the sea and all that is in them? You see, Peter is not thinking about the fish anymore, but he's thinking about the one who is sovereign over the fish. And he realizes that this is no mere rabbi, but he is in the presence of the holy. He is in the presence of the divine. And you know, the Bible says that whenever you get near God, it is a very, very unpleasant experience. You know, that completely flies in the face of sort of the common sense, you know, popular notions of the divine. If you look at the magazines, if you watch the movies, if you watch the TV shows, it says that if you get near God, it's this warm, toasty feeling, you know, it's this very fuzzy uh, experience where, you know, everything goes into soft focus. People will sometimes talk about meeting, encountering God in nature, and you'll ask him, what was it like? And they'll say, oh, it was peaceful. I'm sorry, but that's not the God of the Bible. Because in the Bible, and the Bible is very consistent about this, every time you get near God, it is a profoundly traumatic experience. Look at, for example, Moses meeting God in the burning bush. The text tells us that he was, he was trembling with fear. Or think about Job who speaks with God from the whirlwind. And afterwards, Job says, I despise myself, I repent in dust and ashes. Or think about the prophet Isaiah, that famous scene in the Bible, when he's taken up into the heavenly throne room, he sees God sitting in his throne, and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. You see, every single person when they get near God, it feels like they're coming apart. It feels like, like they're disintegrating. Do you know why? It's because of the experience of the ultimate. It's the experience of the ultimate. And we even get a sense of this on a small scale when we meet certain kinds of people. You know, if you ever uh, work alongside just a brilliant genius you feel stupid, right? You're stumbling over your words. Or if you meet somebody who's just dazzlingly beautiful, you feel awkward and ugly. Because their greatness, even on a human scale, exposes your inadequacy. Imagine, therefore, what it would, like, what it would be like to be in the presence of supreme greatness to be in the presence of absolute holiness, absolute majesty and wisdom. You see, this is what happened to Peter. Peter was so overwhelmed with this deep sense of his unworthiness. And he says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now what Jesus says next is amazing. Because in verse 10, in the second half of verse 10, 
he says, don't be afraid. He says, from now on, you'll be catching men. He says, don't be afraid. He says, from this point on, you will be catching men. I want you to know, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Because on the one hand, Peter has never felt worst in his life. Because in the presence of Jesus, in the brilliance of his holiness, he's just crushed by his sins. He's crushed. But on the other hand, Peter has never felt more deeply affirmed because Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. Peter, I want you to be one of my disciples and through you, I'm going to accomplish my great purposes, right? Peter has never felt more crushed and more lifted up at the same time. That's the gospel. The gospel is that you are more sinful You are more wicked than you can possibly imagine. And at the same time, you are more loved and more affirmed than you would ever dare hope for yourself. You are more wicked so that Jesus had to die on the cross because he had to pay for your sins because that's what your, that's what your sins deserve. And you are more loved so that Jesus willingly and gladly died for you. The Son of God came to the cross to redeem you, to give you a new life, to give you this new identity. That's the gospel. Because notice in the text, Peter gets a new name. If you look at verse 8, he's called Simon Peter. You see, Simon is his old name. Simon is is the name that he, he was born with. But when he meets Jesus, Jesus gives him a new name, which is Peter. In the Greek, it's Petros, which means rock, because Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And in verse 8 is the first time that these two names are brought together, the old name and the new name. And the reason why is because this verse 8 is the transition point. It's the turning point in Peter's life. And from this point on, after this story, he's no longer called Simon but he's addressed as Peter through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. This is the Gospel. Don't you see that the story makes no sense at all? Jesus' reply to Peter makes no sense at all unless you see the Gospel of Christ behind it. Now, for the rest of the time, I want to look at this call and There's so much here. There's so many layers to this that we can really spend the rest of our lives studying this. But for the time that I have, I want to give you four observations, four sub-points. Let me go through them very quickly. Number one, let's look at the decision to accept the call. The decision to accept the call. Because this was a major decision point for Peter. See, we think that it was sort of inevitable that Peter would be this great apostle. And, you know, immediately we're thinking about Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching at Pentecost. He's boldly proclaiming Christ. And 3,000 people convert in a single day. And we're thinking, you know, it was always going to be that way. But you know what that's called? That's called hindsight bias. And we mustn't do that. And for this moment, we must allow ourselves to, to sit in this story And to think about it from Peter's perspective, because in this moment, Peter had to make a choice. And in the moment, it was a really tough choice. 
Because remember, Peter has has just made a million dollar payday. And you know, he could have taken that money and invested it in other boats. He could have built this enormous fishing empire. Or maybe he could have just taken the money and retired. He could have just said, you know, I'm good now. I'm just going to relax and enjoy the rest of my life. And for the rest of his days, he would have this amazing story of this miraculous catch and this strange rabbi who was walking by. So Peter was faced with this choice. And I think it's very similar to that story in Luke chapter 18 of the rich young ruler. Do you guys know the story I'm talking about? Um, Jesus invites the rich young ruler to sell all of his possessions to give his money to the poor. And then Jesus says, come and follow me. But the story tells us that the rich young ruler, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it because he loved money more than anything else in his life. You know, I wonder how many of us would just be content with the fish. How many of us would just walk away with the money? But Peter along with Andrew, James, and John, in verse 11 it says, they left everything to follow Jesus. And because they did that, they had this big life. They had this incredible life, and they walked into the pages of Scripture and into the great purposes of God. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you want to follow Jesus, you have to quit your jobs, you have to go into full-time ministry. That would go against everything else that the Bible has to say. But what I am saying is that Jesus here requires, Jesus is demanding that He be the highest priority in your life. Jesus has to be more important than your money, He has to be more important than your profession and he has to be more important even than your family. You know, it's not here in our text, but in Mark chapter 1, which is the parallel text, it tells us that in the boat with uh, James and John was their father, Zebedee. And so not only did James and John leave the boat, not only did they leave a million dollars worth of fish on the shore, they left their father. And you know what that tells us? It tells us that you cannot follow Jesus and still hold on to all the other allegiances in your life. But Jesus must be Lord. Do you notice in the story that Peter starts out calling Jesus epistata, right? Which means teacher, which means master, is the way you you refer to a, a rabbi. He starts out with epistata, and then he ends in the story calling Jesus kyrios, which means Lord, which is a much, much higher title than epistata. So that's the first point, the decision to accept the call. Second point, let's look at the intensity of the call. And here it's helpful to look at the parallel gospel accounts in Mark chapter 1, in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus says to the to, uh, the fishermen, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? It's a very well-known expression. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So I, want, I just want to look at the first part And examine that. What does Jesus mean when he says, follow me? And it's very simple. It's a metaphor. When Jesus says, follow me, right? He literally means, come along with me and go where I'm going. And not just for a little bit of time, but for the duration. And so what this means, therefore, is 
Jesus is inviting them to come and share a life with him and to come and observe everything that he saw, everything that he does. You know, he's saying, look at how I interact and, I, and how I talk with people. Look at how I live my life. Look at how I handle adversity and opposition. And in doing so, I want you to imitate me. I want you to be like me. And so Jesus is inviting them into this intense discipleship, what we in the modern world would call a mentorship or an internship. Except imagine, instead of just shadowing your mentor through the workday, imagine that you also go home with them. (laughs) Imagine that you get to sit down and have dinner with them and observe how they spend their leisure time And then you're going to sleep in the same room with them. And you're going to wake up with them. And you're going to spend all your hours with them through the weekend. That's what Jesus is calling them to do. He he says, I want you to sleep and eat with me. I want you to live this life with me. And this really goes to the Christian theory of life transformation. You know, how does life transformation happen? Because Jesus could have said to Peter, you know, I want you to go... And listen to some of my lectures. You know, you know, it, it doesn't have to be too intense. Just come once a week and listen to me preach for 30 minutes. Take, a, take some really good notes. And then that's it. Go home and um, the rest of your life is yours. But instead, what we see is that life transformation happens not only by listening to good teaching, but through deep relationships through practicing this common life together. And this is why Jesus chose this small circle of 12 disciples. It seems like a strange way to build this massive movement, right? Wouldn't it be more effective? I mean, think about presidential campaigns. Wouldn't it it be more effective to stage these mass rallies and speak to thousands of people at a time? And you should know that Jesus was really good at, no one was better than Jesus at drawing a crowd. I mean, he was, he was constantly thronged and pressed in by the people. But what is remarkable is how often Jesus rejected the crowds and avoided the crowds. And in fact, if you read the Gospels, he spent much of his time in these small private settings with his disciples teaching them. Which, if you think about it, doesn't seem like an efficient use of time. But don't you see, relationships by their nature are not efficient. They're time-consuming. They're slow to develop. And so Jesus invested his precious time, and nobody's time was more precious than the Son of God. And he invested his precious time so that he could create disciples who would go on to create more disciples. Because you see, disciples are made one relationship at a time. So, what does this mean for us as a church? I think this is a huge challenge for us uh, in the Bay Area. Because time is our most precious resource. And we're always rushing. We're always multitasking. We never have time. Our attention is always divided. And so how are we going to live out this vision? I think this is going to take a massive shift in our priorities and in our values. And we're going to have to learn to invest in what is important and not just what is urgent. 
And we're going to have to have a long-term perspective because, again, relationships take time. I think it is noteworthy that Jesus spent three years of his life with his disciples, developing his disciples, because making disciples is a long, organic process. So that's the second thing, the intensity of the call. Thirdly, I want you to see that the call is to make more disciples. We are to make more disciples. Jesus says, I want you to follow me, and from now on, you'll be fishers of men. So there's a lot here. Let me just make two quick points, two sub-points. Okay? Number one, we've already said this, they go together. These are not two separate activities. Following Jesus and then helping others to follow Jesus. Helping others is not this optional bonus activity that only some you know, super Christian, super pious believers and leaders do. But I want you to know this is for all of us, all of us to practice. And I want you to know that you see this everywhere throughout Scripture. And as I read, I want to give you a few sampling verses, you know, and as I read the passages to you, I want you to notice this, this language that we are, of what we are to do for one another, okay? So I want you to hear the one another language. So listen to this. Paul says, encourage one another and build one another up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. He says, love one another with brotherly affection, Romans 12.10. Teach and admonish one another, Colossians 3.16. Sing, we are to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19. Serve one another, Galatians 5.13. Pray for one another, James 5.16. Are you starting to get the picture? We are to follow Jesus, and along with following Jesus, we are to help others and bring them closer to Jesus. So second point. So first, they go together. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus does not call us out of our professions to do this, but he transforms it for his purposes. Let me say that again. He does not call us out of our professions, but he transforms it for his purposes. Because notice Jesus calls Peter and he says, from now on, you will be fishing for men. Listen to me. That's not just a clever uh, turn of phrase, but he's saying something really profound. Because what he's saying is, Peter, all of your life, you thought you were just fishing for fish. But don't you see now, you were training. You were training so that you can fish for men. And therefore, all the skills that you honed, all the experiences that you accrued is not going to go to waste, but I'm going to use it for my great purposes. Listen to me. Not all of us are called to be apostles or pastors, but all of us are called to bring people closer to Christ and to give Christ glory to the world, before the world. And we are to do it not disconnected from our professions, but we are to do it through our professions. What does that mean? Listen to me. It means that everything you do now has this greater purpose, this greater meaning behind it. So that you're not just going to work. You're not just working for Google or Kaiser or or Safeway. But the Bible says ultimately you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You're serving the Lord. And from that perspective, if you have that perspective, it will transform your work. You know, I've talked to so many of you, and I know that a lot of you, you hate your jobs. You loathe it. Or at the very least, you are barely tolerating. You're barely hanging on. And your jobs, they're, they're frustrating. They're often boring. You know, you see a lot of corruption and, and selfishness at your work. It's very discouraging and it's just sucking the life out of you. And I really want to be honest with you right now. I think a big part of it is that basically you're using your jobs to make money. You're in it for the money. And by itself, that's not wrong. It's good to make money, you know, so that you can pay your bills, so that you can take care of your responsibilities and your loved ones. But what if there was a greater purpose behind your work? What if you were on a mission from God and you were sent specifically to your workplace as his agent and so that every day you go to work and every day you begin by saying, Lord, how can I be used by you today? How can I be salt and light in this dark place? And let me tell you, if you have that attitude, you're fishing for men. And you're giving glory to God. Finally, number four, I want you to look at who Jesus calls. We've already mentioned this, but fishermen in the ancient world did not really have a high status. And in Acts chapter 4, this comes out in in verse 13, um, the rulers and the authorities, it says, listen to this verse, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. You see, Jesus did not recruit the most sophisticated, the elite members of that society, but he picks these four fishermen, these simple, blue-collar, ordinary men, because Jesus is not looking only for the most talented, the most accomplished people. But you know what he's looking for? He's looking for a willing heart. He's looking for a humble, teachable heart. That's what matters in the kingdom of God. You see, this world, it values talent and it values money. This is, I think, indisputable. It judges people based on talent, based on money. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus values people because they're people. Because all human beings are made in the image of God. And therefore, in the church, don't discriminate. Don't write anybody off because you think they're not worth very much. But instead, invest in people. Pour yourself out for people, all people. This is the vision of our church. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, it's kind of amazing that you chose Peter, Peter the fisherman, to be the rock on which you built the church. And in Peter's call, we see the gospel. We see this beautiful mission to fish for men. Lord, would you help us to be just like Peter, 
to hear and to receive your call and your claim upon our lives. Lord, we're asking you, make us a church community that is helping one another to do this. Let this be this great mission that occupies our lives, that doesn't take us out of our workplace, but re-envisions it, repurposes it, so that everything we do, everything we have, is for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.